Good morning. My name is Beth, and I get to read for you guys today John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things even be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you and good to have you with us today. Um, We are excited uh, to be in the middle of a series uh, about the foundations of the church. What do we believe as the church? Um, What is it that we hold to? What separates the church from any other organization, from any other entity in the world? What sets us apart as believers And what do we believe here at Disciples Church? And so uh, it's my privilege and honor um, to open up the word this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. My name is Jonathan. I probably should have mentioned that as well. But John chapter 3. And so uh, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it up. Look at John chapter 3. And you can also, uh, if if, if you'd like, you can also open your uh, Bible to the book of Ezekiel. Put a finger in that page or maybe uh, bookmark it on your phone, whatever you want to do. But Ezekiel chapter 36 will be there as well this morning. But John chapter 3. So last week we talked a little bit about the idea of what is the church and looking at the, really what is the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. Um, And what we saw in that was that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon his ascension, said, I'm going to give another one to you that's going to give testimony of me. If you want to know who I am, all you have to do is understand who the Holy Spirit is. And so the Holy Spirit is given to his people in Acts chapter 2. He does an incredible work in the lives of those that were gathered there as Peter stands up and gives the first sermon of what would eventually become the church in Jerusalem. And as he preaches this incredibly simple sermon, 3,000 people come to know Jesus Christ. They follow him in baptism and then ultimately into entry into the church itself. And so we're talking now upon seeing the birth of the church and the idea of what the church is, that it's something that God himself breathed, it's something that he set apart, it's something that he intended for us and that he calls us to. We see now the first mark of really what sets apart a true church. 
And using Acts 2.41 as that first initial guide, what we see is the mark of the first, or rather the first mark of the true church is that it is made up of those who know Jesus. And so in this morning, we're going to talk about something that's really very elementary to our faith. It's very basic to our faith. But the question that we're asking and addressing this morning is this, what is salvation? What is conversion? When we use those words, what are we really speaking to? And so we're going to talk about that specifically from the life of Jesus in his interaction with Nicodemus in this morning. It's a very familiar passage, but here's one of the things that I love about this particular text. It's through it we get a sense of who Jesus is. See, Jesus, in terms of his interactions with people, is really an incredible storyteller. And as he interacts with people and as he talks to them, what you see is that he's constantly using the scenarios in which they find themselves and the things that surround them to illustrate his points and his purposes. It gives us an insight into a little bit of who Jesus is as a person. See, Jesus never speaks professorially about the condition of man. He doesn't just come at this from a purely doctrinal perspective, though certainly he does that at points, but what he does is he meets people where they are and uses the things that are around them to illustrate what it is he's trying to teach. He's trying to show us through the story of Nicodemus a very understandable way of what it is to come to know him. And so in the book of John, you see things where Jesus, Jesus uses examples of darkness and light to illustrate salvation. He talks about the fact that he is the living bread that once you taste of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never be spiritually hungry again. He says the same thing about himself being the living water. He talks, himself, talks about himself as, as the sheep, uh, to, or as the shepherd rather, to the sheep. That he's the one who's going to lay down his life for his people. That he pursues us and he chases us down and he rescues us and he calls us to himself by name. But in this morning's text, we come across one of the most famous, one of the most famous accounts And one of the most famous bits of language that he uses about salvation, and that is, you must be born again. Now, even as I say that word, born again, there may be things that run through your mind, depending on your upbringing, your experience, whether or not you know God, whether or not you believe in God, whether or not you understand who Jesus Christ is, your experience uh, within religion broadly. I mean, when you hear the term born again, it may incite thankfulness and appreciation and joy in your heart, or it may be something that scares you. Because culturally, and within its portrayal within media, when you hear the term born again, you have a very pejorative connotation that comes along with that. And generally, it refers to people who may or may not be educated. Uh, They may or may not be people who who understand things intellectually. They may or may not be people who understand uh, the world at a detailed level. I mean, there tends to be a very pejorative view when we use that term born again. But what we find in this text is that to view the idea of being born again that way is to misunderstand what being born again is altogether. Because it's a beautiful and profound picture of what salvation is. And when we think of it, and when people use that language, particularly people outside of the church, when they use the language born again, typically what they're referring to, if they mean it in any kind of a positive sense, is they mean that there are those people out there who need to be born again, the people whose lives are really broken, those who are really messed up, Maybe those who find themselves in prison for one reason or another, or maybe those who are addicted to substances for one reason or another. Those are the people who need the structure and the morality and the change of heart that being born again brings. But I want you to notice to whom Jesus gives 
this instruction this morning because what Jesus is going to do in this text is absolutely blow up the perspective we have of who needs Jesus and why we need him. And so we'll begin in John chapter 3, verse 1, which says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now to paint this picture a little bit, imagine the scenario, if you will. In John chapter 2, what we've seen is that Jesus' fame is rapidly spreading. And John chapter 2 records the the first two of his miracles. Uh, It records the water being turned into wine. It records the account where he walks into the temple and seeing that these people have turned the temple, this place that was meant to be set aside for the worship of God, they've turned it into this, this house of trade. They're literally taking advantage of people who are coming to worship for the sake of their own pocketbooks. And so Jesus walks in and turns over the temple. Jesus is getting all sorts of attention. His name is rapidly spreading and people know who he is. And here's what they know about Jesus from the outside. What they know about him is that he is able to do incredible, miraculous things. They've seen him do miracles and they've heard the stories of miracles that he's performed. And so the religious elite at that time began to think, maybe this, maybe this man really is from God. Maybe there's really something set apart about him. Maybe there's something really powerful about him. And certainly they knew about his oratory skills. I mean, certainly they had heard him teach or heard about the things that, they had, that he had taught. They knew that he had an ability to communicate that was unique among people. And so here is this man named, named Nicodemus. We're told that he was a ruler of the Jews, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the nation of Israel, and it is safe to assume that Nicodemus had maybe even perhaps witnessed these miracles firsthand. But certainly, he found himself intrigued by the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're told that he came by night, and there's all kinds of speculation. If you begin to look at commentaries, there's all sorts of speculation as to why that is. The most common interpretation is that Nicodemus came at night because he was a seeker. He wanted to know more about who Jesus was. He wanted to follow God deeply, but he didn't want to be looked down upon by the other Pharisees and the other members of the Sanhedrin. So he came in the middle of the night to seek out Jesus, to find out who this man was, and to get to really know him so that he could know God. And that's certainly a possibility. The theory that I would tend to hold to is that he was not a seeker. And I'll show you the reasons why I think that. But I think that in this moment, Nicodemus is coming because he's trying to get Jesus to align with the religious establishment. And the reason that I say that is because Nicodemus begins his conversation with Jesus by saying, we know that you're from God. On some level or another, he was speaking on behalf of the religious establishment, the religious elite, those who were in a position of authority and influence and power in the broader culture. And so he's coming to Jesus saying, we understand and we see the influence that you're gaining. We see the oratory skill that you present. We see the miracles that you performed. We want you to be part of our club. We're willing to work alongside of you. But the truth is, whatever the reason that brought Nicodemus to this point into this conversation, he came to get something from Jesus. And Jesus answers in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Now, here's what's incredible about this very familiar account. Jesus doesn't even respond directly to what Nicodemus says. Nicodemus comes and he says, truly you're a teacher from God because nobody can do these miracles if they weren't sent from God. And Jesus' answer is, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And it seems like this total non sequitur. How are these two things related? How are they even connected? Jesus interrupts the conversation that Nicodemus wanted to lead him into the conversation that he needed. And the truth is, how many times in our own lives have we found ourselves in the exact same spot? Where we come to Jesus for what he can give, or we come to him for what we perceive is our need. We come to him in a moment of desperation, or because we believe he'll add something to our life. And then when you actually encounter Jesus, what you realize is that he has flipped the script, and he's having a totally different conversation with you than what you originally intended. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus here, and then later in verse 7, you must be born again. Now we expect Jesus to say those sorts of things to to the prostitute, to the woman that's caught in adultery. We expect him to say it to Zacchaeus. We expect him to say it to the down and out of society, to those who were broken or those who were hurting, to those who were obsessed with their own sin, to those who, who had never darkened the door of the temple. We expect Jesus to say this sort of thing to them. Of course, those people need to be born again. Of course, they need some sort of miraculous intervention from God in their life. But Jesus says this to a member of the Sanhedrin. He says this to a member of the ruling religious body of the day. So here is this man who, by his own account, is an old man, and he would have to be in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin. This isn't a young man. This is a man who is experienced. He's an elder. He's educated. He's wealthy. He's influential. He's a man within a patriarchal culture. Everything is going for this guy. Everything has been working to his benefit. And he has been living a life by his own account that he views to be righteous and above board. He views himself as someone who is inherently good. And this religious leader, by any external moral standard, is a good man. And I want you to think about this because, again, so often, 2,000 years removed, we carry in our own biases and prejudices into these conversations. But when we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately think legalist and hypocrite. And those two words, by the way, are, are largely true of who the Pharisees were. But understand that we're looking at that through the lens of completed Scripture. To be alive at this time when you saw a Pharisee or when you saw a member of the Sanhedrin, as a parent, you were turning to your child and saying, do you see that man over there? You need to be like that man someday. These were people who were examples in life and society. They were setting the standard for righteous living. They were, they were doing everything they thought they were supposed to be doing. And not only does Jesus tell this man that he needs to be born again, but what's more, in verse 10, Jesus calls, uh, he calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. I mean, it'd be like saying within a modern context that this guy is a, a professor of theology, or maybe he's the president of a seminary. He is a national religious leader. And Jesus tells the one who should know these things already Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, upon hearing this, would have been flabbergasted. 
Because the Jews at this time held a very particular view of the kingdom of God, which is that the kingdom of God was going to come at the end of the age. It was going to be established when all other things had been completed. And at that time, faithful Jews, those who had followed the law and done all of the right things and, been, and done the things that they had been taught to do at synagogue and in the temple, that those people would be granted admission to the kingdom. But Jesus is speaking in an entirely different understanding of what the kingdom is because Jesus is speaking of the kingdom that he was in the process of ushering in. A spiritual kingdom that was bringing redemption and salvation, was bringing forgiveness and justification. And Jesus tells Nicodemus in this chapter that neither his tribal identity nor his family name nor his religious pedigree would grant him access He's saying to Nicodemus, it doesn't matter who you are or what your name is or what church you belong to or how well you've done in obeying the things that the Bible teaches, you need a savior. And Jesus, in having this conversation, is systematically unraveling everything that this man was relying on for his acceptability before God. He says to him, you need to be born again. Or your translation may say, you need to be born from above. He's saying, Nicodemus, you need a spiritual intervention. You think you're on the right path and you have no idea where you're headed. In verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? There's a lot of ways you could read this. I mean, either Nicodemus is just totally confused at this whole concept. Either he's so thrown off by the language that Jesus is using that he literally doesn't know what Jesus is saying. Or he is emphasizing the fact that he is an old man. And in doing so, what he's declaring to Jesus is he's saying, I've been doing this for too long to change paths now. I'm too old. It's too late for me. But either way, Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, he's saying, don't be surprised, Nicodemus, that I'm telling you this. You should, you should know this stuff. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus, in trying to clarify what Nicodemus' question was, just repeats what he said before. He said, verily, verily, I say to you, you must be born again. And then he goes on with this description where he talks about being born of the water and of the Spirit and, 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 and all, of these, uh, all of these unique elements. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's quoting Ezekiel 36. This is ultimately why he says to Nicodemus, you should already know these things I'm talking about because he's quoting from the prophets. He's quoting from a passage in scripture that certainly Nicodemus would have known well. Perhaps Nicodemus even taught this publicly. And yet Nicodemus doesn't seem to have understanding. See, Ezekiel chapter 36 prophesies about a day where God will restore his people through a Messiah, where, where he will bring his kingdom into fullness through reconciliation. And listen to the words of Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Here's what it says. And listen to how close this is to what Christ says. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, Jesus is saying to this man who probably knew this text by heart, that the reason you don't understand it is because the spirit hasn't begun to transform you. That's what he's referencing in verse 8. And what he's saying is, in order to see the kingdom, this thing that all of the Jews desired more than anything else in the world, Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom, you have to experience what Ezekiel says, which is the new birth. And what he's saying in this is, everything good that you've done, all of your obedience to the law, and all of your ability to do the right thing, and all of your teaching and preaching, and all of your good works, and all of your generosity to the poor, and all of your giving to the church, amounts to absolutely nothing if you are doing it from a dead heart. It's what we sang about earlier in that song where he said, it is yet not I, but Christ through me. Jesus is saying you absolutely need a savior because everything you have done and everything you've stored up to earn the acceptance of God has mounted you with absolutely nothing. Jesus is saying you are not in need of renovation. You are are in need of transformation. You need the renewal of your heart that only the Holy Spirit can bring. And he's talking here about conversion. Salvation. See, understand this. I read this this week and it just leapt out at me. The call to be born again is not a call to morality and religion. It's a challenge to morality and religion. See, we think about the idea of being born again, or particularly from a worldly perspective, a non-Christian perspective, we tend to think about it in terms of a new moral system, a new moral code. Here's a new way to behave, a new system of laws for you to observe. That person needs to be born again so that they can stop living the way that they are living and start living in a new way. And so we boil down the idea of being born again to, to simply a new system of laws and morals. But understand this, Nicodemus didn't need a new system of laws and morals. The system he had been given, he was following to a T. Works were not this man's problems. His inability to obey was not his problem. The problem was that everything he did, he was doing out of a dead heart. With no understanding of his need for a savior. See, Nicodemus didn't need a new moral code. He needed a new life. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says to us in no uncertain terms, this is exactly what all of us need. So what is the new birth? There's probably a lot of ways you could define it, but here's the definition I came up with for it. The new birth is a supernatural act of God in which we are united to Christ, given his life, and transformed by his spirit. I'll repeat that again. The new birth is a supernatural act of God in which we are united to Christ, given his life, 
and transformed by his spirit. And if you want to know where I pulled that, I pulled that exactly from Ezekiel chapter 36. So, I mean, think about it. The supernatural act of God. Who's doing the work? It's God. If the work was up to you to make yourself spiritually new, to to give yourself new spiritual life, to be given this new birth, do you understand that you have no ability to do that? I mean, how much power and how much influence does a baby in the womb have about when he or she is actually born in the world? Absolutely none. No ability inherently, entirely dependent on the mother, entirely dependent on a mother giving birth to that child. And in the very same way, what Jesus is saying when he describes this as a new birth, as being born again, is this is not a work you can do. This is a work upon which you are entirely dependent on the intervention of God. And think about it this way. I mean, there's no indication in this chapter that that Nicodemus came as a seeker. There was no indication that he came saying, you know what, my moral system isn't working and I need something new. He came as a politician. He came as a religious elite. And yet Christ, in the middle of this conversation, saw fit to pursue him. And it's the same thing that we find over and over again in the history of the early church. It's the story of Paul who's on the road to Damascus on his way to imprison and murder followers of Jesus Christ. And in the middle of his pursuit to kill Christians, Jesus appears to him on the road, knocks him to the ground, and saves him. Paul wasn't on that road looking for salvation any more than Nicodemus was coming to Jesus looking for salvation. And yet, God saves. So it's a supernatural work of God, but it's in the process of us being united with Christ. And I pull that from Ezekiel 36, 27, where it says that we are given his spirit. And this language is echoed in 1 Corinthians 1.30, where Paul writes, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And here's what he's saying. When you come to know Jesus Christ, when you experience what it is to be born again, you are united with Jesus Christ in the Spirit. And in that process, here's what happens. It's not that God takes all of your righteousness and adds it to your account and says, now all of your works are verified. No, what he says is everything you did prior to Christ, everything you did outside of Christ is worth absolutely nothing. But now I'm going to look at you as as I would look at my very own son so that when he looks at me he doesn't see a failure and he doesn't see a moral mistake and he doesn't see somebody who can't get his act together and he doesn't see someone who's constantly falling and failing when I'm in Christ and the father looks at me what he sees is the perfection of his own son it's what Jesus Jesus Christ accomplished through his perfect life and what he applied to my heart through his death and through his resurrection that we're united with him And finally, it says in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit in you, and what? Cause you to walk in my statutes. That he begins a work of transformation. That you begin to live out of a new heart and a new identity entirely dependent on Jesus Christ. And this is the story that we see play out literally millions of times throughout Christian history. 
And truthfully, most of those accounts we're not aware of and haven't heard of, but from the most religious to the most irreligious, this is what the work of the gospel does. So I came across two examples of this week that I want to share with you. One I was familiar with, one I was not. The first one is the story of Augustine. Augustine is an early church father. Certainly his name is familiar, but uh, Augustine was a phenomenal theologian, added to the body of the church in an incredible way, uh, wrote works that we still read and reference today, nearly 1,700 years later. I mean, Augustine is an incredible man that God used. But here's what's really amazing in the life of Augustine. Before Augustine came to know Jesus Christ, he was an incredibly intelligent and brilliant man who was also a womanizer. And in the, most, in the most potent sense of what that word means, he was a womanizer. He was known for his dalliances. He was known for his relationships that he would have with women. He was known for having women in various towns with whom he had had relationships. And, and it was, in fact, maybe the biggest thing in his life that kept him from knowing Jesus Christ. But but once the gospel came into his heart and once his life had been transformed by the gospel, there's one story that Augustine shares where he went back to a town uh, where he had previously had a girlfriend and was, as he was walking down the street, he saw this woman who he knew very well walk up to him and she saw Augustine and just lit up at seeing him and ran over to him expecting that they would, have, uh, that they would continue their relationship and, and pick up where they left off. And so as she approached him, she just realized there was something different about him. And so they had a conversation, and in that conversation, he was incredibly warm and incredibly kind to her. But then he never made an advance, and he began to walk away. She was stunned by this exchange because she knew him so well, and they had had such a long relationship together. And so then it occurred to her, well, maybe it's just been too long since we've seen each other, and he didn't didn't recognize who I was. And so she calls after him, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine responded back, Yes, but it is not I. His life had been so transformed as someone who knew nothing about Jesus Christ, as someone who had no religious belief or moral code, but his life was so transformed by the power of the gospel in that moment that it was like he was a different person altogether. And for some of you, that's your story. In fact, that may be where God has you right now. In the middle of that process, figuring out who you are. Where you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart. You understand the redemption that he offers, but you can't imagine living life any other way than the way that you've always lived it. And for you, the story of Augustine is an invitation. But there's another story famous in Christian history, and it's the story of Luther. Luther, after years of running away from God, finally decides one day, I'm going to follow God with all my heart, and he pours himself, devotes himself into religious pursuits and studies. So much so that he's writing religious works and theological treatises, and he's teaching other priests, and he's functioning as a priest within the Catholic Church. He's he's doing his daily readings of the Word. He's studying the Scripture. He's pouring himself out in religious pursuits, trying to find the righteousness that the Gospel itself talks about. And so he comes to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it talks about the idea that the righteous or the just shall live by faith. 
And he begins to wrestle with this verse because he cannot put together in his mind how it all works. He's looking at it through a perspective that says that if you do not live a righteous life, if you are not able to muster up all of the right behaviors, that there's judgment for you. That you need to make yourself righteous in order for God to accept you. But as he comes to Romans 1.17, what he finds is that there's something about his theology that doesn't line up with Scripture. I mean, this man is so religious that day after day, multiple times a day, he's going to other priests to confess his sins. To the point where other priests were exasperated at the mere sight of him. That's how devoted to religion Luther is. But as he studies Romans 1.17 one day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it all clicks. And he realizes that no, righteousness is something that is bestowed on me. It's given to me. It's applied to my heart only through faith in Christ. And suddenly this, this man who is marked by his spiritual insecurity so scared and so frightened that he's running to the priest daily to confess every little sin he can think of, becomes a man that God uses to bring about the reformation of the church. A man that God uses mightily to stand against bad practices within the church and poor theology within the church. So what was the common thing that happened in both the life of Augustine a non-believing pagan given over to a life of sexual sin, and Luther, a morally religious priest who had devoted himself to good works in the study of the word. What happened is that they were changed entirely by this very same gospel. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And Jesus is speaking there of the testimony of the Old Testament and his own testimony in that moment. You don't receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. See, when Nicodemus approached, he said, we know you're from God because, because of the miracles. That's how we know that you're a great teacher. That's how we know that God actually sent you. And Jesus is saying, you're half right. It's true that Jesus is a teacher. It's true that his followers called him rabbi, which means teacher. But Jesus says, you're half right in understanding me as a teacher, but you are relating to me in entirely the wrong way. And what Jesus is declaring in this moment is to believe that he is merely a good teacher will never bring about new birth. It's the folly of all of those who would say, I love the example of Jesus Christ and I love the teachings of Jesus Christ and I love the idea of turning the other cheek and loving the poor and caring for the needy. I love all of those things about Jesus Christ. He's such a great teacher. But then never coming to the realization that he's also Savior. Jesus is essentially saying that everything I've told you to this point is from the law and you should already understand those things, but you don't. 
And if you don't believe the things that the law and that I have told you, how are you going to believe me when I talk about heavenly things that you can't understand? And then Jesus makes the exclusive, narrow claim of Christianity. He describes himself as the Son of Man, which is a quote from Daniel chapter 7. It's a claim that God himself would enter into the world. And Jesus is saying to you today the same thing that he said to Nicodemus 2,000 years ago. If you only see me as teacher, if you only see me as example, you are missing that I'm the Savior. And Jesus ends this dialogue with Nicodemus with an invitation. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You may or may not remember this kind of obscure Old Testament story. It comes from Numbers chapter 21 if you want to read it. But in that story, the children of Israel are are in the wilderness and they're set upon by poisonous snakes. And so all of these Israelites are on the ground moaning in pain, having been bitten with this venom. They're about to die. And so God comes to Moses and says, I want you to make a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole and put it where everybody can see it. And anybody who turns their eyes and looks to that serpent will be saved. And so Jesus says, in the same way that the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up to give the Israelites salvation, so I will have to be lifted up. So that all those who believe in me may have eternal life. See, Jesus is pointing forward to his own death. And he's saying to Nicodemus, you think that I'm here to teach good things and to give a new law, but I'm actually here to give myself. And as Jesus hung on the cross, his naked and torn apart body hung there as a declaration for all who would believe that salvation comes not through religion and not through our own obedience, but through a person. It's the difference between Jesus as teacher and Jesus as savior. And that difference is everything. As a church for us in this place, that difference is everything. Because if Jesus is merely a teacher, then all that he has given you is an obligation to live perfectly. And inevitably, when that obligation to live perfectly fails, it will leave you broken and crushed with no relief and no forgiveness where your ego becomes everything, and when your ego is inevitably threatened, you lose everything. Or, like Nicodemus, to the extent that you are a rule follower, that you're great at following the jot and tittle of the law, that you dot every I and cross every T and do the right thing, to the extent that you do that, you will be left, like Nicodemus, as a proud individual, missing entirely your need for a Savior. But if he is a Savior then he alone can bring new birth. 
a new identity, a new life, a new heart, a new will, new motivations, new directions, that you in that moment are no longer marked by your ability to live right, but you are marked by the perfect life that Jesus already lived so that you can begin to live free and humbly and unashamed. Let me just show you briefly the end of this story because it's not in this passage. We've seen Nicodemus two other times throughout his life. We find him in John chapter 7 at the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. I apologize, I think that's the wrong chapter now that I say it. I don't have it written down. We find him later in the book of John. You can look it up. At the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And in that passage, we find this very interesting exchange The Sanhedrin had brought Jesus in. They're trying to rush their way through this trial to find him guilty so that they can kill him. And who do we find sitting among the Sanhedrin? But Nicodemus. And Nicodemus actually speaks out in that moment. And what he says to the rest of the Sanhedrin is, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And the reply of the other Sanhedrin came back, Are you from Galilee too? Which was a slight about the birthplace of Jesus, this backwater village. Are you foolish? Are you an idiot? Is what they're saying to Nicodemus. Why are you standing with this man who we all think deserves to die? And in that moment, we don't know where Nicodemus is spiritually. We don't know where he is in his relationship with Jesus Christ. But it is obvious that he's still wrestling with this exchange. That he's still considering everything Jesus said. And he's mocked for it. He's working through the implications of what Jesus meant. And so as, Jesus, or as, rather, as Nicodemus sees Jesus on trial, he is no doubt there when Jesus is condemned to death. And it's safe to assume, based on what we find later on, that Nicodemus is probably there when Jesus is crucified. And so he actually gets to see what Jesus foretold. That he would be lifted up on the cross so that all who would believe in him would find salvation. And after the crucifixion, in John chapter 19... Who do we see but Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea as they wrap Jesus' body and take him to the tomb to be buried? Now, here's why that's significant. It's significant because the work of burying an individual was not done by men in the society. It was work that was considered beneath them. It was work that was left to women or to slaves. It was not something that a person of noble lineage with wealth and influence and power and status would ever do. And yet we find Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these two wealthy old men, taking the body of Jesus Christ to bury him. What happened? He witnessed and saw and believed as Jesus was being lifted up as the proverbial serpent in the wilderness. He experienced new birth. 
He was supernaturally united to Christ. He was given his life. He was transformed by his spirit. And Jesus is inviting you to see him the same way today. See, the truth is, we can have all kinds of conversations about what we believe in faith and theology, and we can have intellectual conversations and back and forth about the veracity of Scripture, about the veracity of Christian history, about whether or not one ought to believe or the extent to which one needs to believe. And I can try to convince you all day what it is that you need to believe, but the truth of the matter is it is only the Spirit who can do this work. And the invitation of Jesus Christ is that you, like Nicodemus, would see him lifted up on the cross. Not just as another teacher, a moral example, but as the Savior, as the Son of Man who would need to be crucified. And my prayer in sharing all of this first that those of you who are wrestling with the idea of whether or not this God exists and whether or not Jesus is who he says he is would have one more piece of scripture to consider as you wrestle through that conversation and that by the grace of God he would illuminate your eyes to see and your mind to believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And the second reason that I share all of this today is so that we as a church in this place would be marked as a people who have been born again. Because outside of the church being marked by all the things we talked about last week, the things we talked about this morning, and the things we'll talk about over the next weeks, outside of those things, we're just another club. Just another place for you to spend your Sunday morning I mean, at best, we're an organization who tries to do nice things for people. But if all of this is true, and if it begins to transform our life, and if we're supernaturally, through the act of God, united to Christ, given his spirit, and have our lives transformed, the church becomes something entirely different altogether. It becomes what Jesus Christ said it is, the bride of Christ. So my invitation to you this morning is to see Jesus as Nicodemus eventually saw him. To experience him the way that Ezekiel 36 calls us to. So that you could have salvation and eternal life. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I thank you for a text like this. God, in many ways, a very easy text, and in other ways, one that is so challenging to our very notion of who we are and who you are, that it turns everything on its head. And so, Lord, I pray that for those in this room whose lives have been marked by irreligion, a lack of pursuit of truth, a lack of observance, and an addiction to sin. I pray that they, like Augustine, would have lives transformed by the gospel. 
that they would say in that moment, I've become an entirely new person. And for those who've been following, but from a distance, who followed you as teacher, who followed you as example, but do not know you as Savior and Lord, God, would today be the day that they see you for who you are as the one who gives life abundant and free. And so, Lord, we pray, trusting all of these things to you and trusting that it is your spirit who calls men and women and boys and girls to yourself. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray.